And let's begin by reading. I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible. Let's read this entire passage, 13 through 20. Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say? What's the Gallup poll saying about who the Son of Man is? And that's a title for Jesus that emphasizes his humanity. And they said a lot of positive things. Some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of God's prophets. Nobody's saying bad things. Verse 15, then Jesus said to them, but who do you, and that's plural, who do all y'all, you know, in Oklahoma we've got y'all, singular, all y'all's plural. He's talking to the group of 12, away from the rigors of ministry. What do you say about me now? Because the Jewish leaders have rejected him as a satanically possessed false prophet. That's the official position. He's wondering where they are, having thought it through. And Simon Peter hits a grand slam home run. It's the two-point extra point at the end of the ball game to win the game, you might say. You, you are the Christ, not a Christ, but the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You've received light from above, and you've got the the whole enchilada, if I can use technical terms there, uh, but your Father who is in heaven. And I also say this to you, you are Peter, you are Petros, you're Rocky, you're a little piece of rock, but upon this slab, uh, Petra, uh, of foundation stone, truth that I am the Christ Son of God, I will build my church, and it transcends cultures, colors, generations, denominations, all who embrace Jesus as the Christ, I will build my church and the powers of Satan, the gates of Hades will not overpower his capital C church, much bigger than Tangwood Bible Fellowship Church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. That's the tense in the Greek. Uh, where This is not heaven responding to the church. It's the church announcing what heaven says. Whatever you have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples they should tell no one, not right now, right at that point in history, that he was the Christ. We're walking through the life of Christ A through Z, and we come to letter Q today, quizzical questions. We have kind of this uh, basic question, what is the Gallup poll saying about me now, that the leaders of Judaism, who are the experts, are saying I'm satanically possessed. And then he says, what do you guys think now? You know what the leaders say. You know how dangerous this is now. And uh, Peter, speaking for 11, 12s of them, Judas never was a believer, says the exact right answer. And uh, this morning, as we dive into the word, you know, I came to church and thought, wow, we're really doing up Veterans Day today. That's great, you know, and celebrating Henley. Then they said it's Pastor Appreciation Day, but, uh, or, uh, Pastor's Appreciation Day. But let's, uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word. And as is our custom, uh, in addition to honoring our veterans, let's remember those who actively are on the front lines, even this morning, in our active military and our peace officers and our firefighters. And, uh, Hey, Murray, Powers, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction. Teachability and troops, okay? Thanks, Murray. Uh, in order to fully warm up our capacity for abstract thought, I want to show you how 
Many mega churches make sure everybody loves their pastor. It's just not easy to do. Uh, it's kind of based on the multi-screen movie theater approach, and that's that's not nothing new. I mean, even downtown Duncan has a theater with two screens on it. So you know, you go to the movie theater, and you've got four screens or eight screens or twenty-eight screens, and so everybody is going to the movie they like. Well, some of the mega churches have uh, finally come up with a way to integrate that concept to the local church. So you go not to a multi-screen theater, you go to a multi-auditoria church, and you get to pick a pastor, you know? And this week we've got stern but caring. That's one choice. You can go to that, you know, auditoria A. Uh, fire and brimstone, that would be auditorium B. Serious theologian, that would be auditorium C. And then finally, easygoing pushover. So anyway, that went about the way I thought it would. Yeah, uh, Life of Christ, A through Z, we can walk through the 26 major events. we got one Savior, Jack. we got four Gospels. we got 26 major events, and you can memorize them because you've already memorized the alphabet. He's a smart kid, and everybody here knows the alphabet. And you can walk through uh, and actually put these events like this, who do people say that I am, who do you say that I am. Knowing where that is in the overall context of Christ, Myrna, is critical to make sense of why Jesus is asking that question at that point. And to emphasize that these are real people, real places, real events, let's put A through Q on the map and walk through the life of Christ. A has two parts. Angels announce the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist to his dad and uh, Zacharias. They're too old to have children uh, outside of Jerusalem. And then uh, to Mary, supernatural virgin conception kind of pregnancy, who's going to be uh, overcome by the Holy Spirit and bear the God-man Savior for the world. And uh, then, so an angel announces that to Mary and also three months later to Joseph after she comes back from being out of town for three months. So that's A. B stands for birth in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a city about six miles due south of Jerusalem, downhill all the way. Uh, nothing significant, uh, Jason, had happened there for a thousand years since the birth of David, but the Old Testament prophet Micah said the Messiah would be born in that seemingly insignificant place, Bethlehem. That's birth in Bethlehem. See, carpentry career. Jesus was a tecton, which means a skilled worker in wood or stone, uh, building things with his hands, and he did that from age 12 as an apprentice all the way until he was about 30. Luke says Jesus begins his public ministry when he was about 30. So 18 years working with his hands, three years preaching. I would not organize his ministry that way, but God works uh, perfectly, and but he surprises you sometimes, doesn't he? After 18 years of working with his hands six days a week, the ministry of Christ begins with D and E. Dove descends at the Duncan, where Jesus identifies with John the Baptist, who is this prophet the Old Testament said would come right before the Christ the Savior would come, and Jesus identifies with his ministry, and the voice of God the Father says, that's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So the righteousness of Christ is announced at D, when he's baptized, dove descends. Immediately, goes, Jesus goes to the wilderness, fast, and goes one-on-one with the spiritual adversary, Satan himself, and demonstrates his righteousness. So you might say, we don't know a lot about what Jesus did during C, from 12 to 30. No, we don't know very much detail, but we know at the beginning of his ministry, God the Father says, this is my son, I'm blessed, I'm, I'm uh, pleased with him, he's perfectly righteous, he demonstrates that. 
He must be sinless in order to die for your sins, and more importantly, to die for my sins. We must have somebody with no moral debt to pay our moral debt. Okay, that's D and E. What's F? After Jesus is tempted, he goes backward. John the Baptist is baptizing, and John starts funneling his disciples to Jesus. He says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the guy I baptized. That's the one I'm here to promote. And those first five followers are John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. G, all those guys are from northern Israel where Jesus ministered and worked for all that time. So they go back to the home base, and G takes place in a little village called Cana of Galilee, where Jesus does his first miracle, raises the dead, right? Uh, cures the incurable leper, right? Now, he changes water into wine at a wedding reception to keep the party going. And there are reasons he does that there, but that's great guests at the wedding reception in Cana of Galilee. Now, the kind of grand opening of the ministry starts when at, during his first Passover during his ministry, Jesus does house cleaning at the temple. Because having begun his ministry and come to the city that ought to be worshiping him, he finds the whole system corrupt. Beware of large bureaucracies. Whether they be religious slash Christian or government or anything, they tend to become corrupt. They tend to exist to promote their own existence. And he's saying, after 2,000 years of explicit prophecies about me coming and you guys, if anybody should have been waiting for me at the temple, you've totally corrupted the system. You're ripping people off in the name of religion, in the name of God. Harsh house cleaning. I, while Jesus is in Jerusalem, the capital city, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he has this interview with Nicodemus, who's the outstanding teacher of Judaism at the time. And this guy is an old guy concerned about his mortality. And Jesus says, you got to be born again if you want to go to heaven. You can't be just a great Jewish uh, person. You've got to be uh, the recipient of a whole new birth, a spiritual birth. And he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again through faith in me. That's incredible interview. And watch this. How do you get from southern Israel down here, let's call that Judah, to northern Israel, where Jesus will base his ministry? Well, you'd think you'd go straight to Samaria, but no self-respecting religious Jew would, because those people had spiritual cooties, right? They were part Jew, part Gentile. But Jesus, overriding the religious legalistic prescription goes right through the middle of Samaria to go back from Jerusalem back to northern Galilee, uh, to the area of Galilee. And he has jive talk with the woman at the well. Now, when I interviewed Nicodemus, you've got a man who's wealthy, who's famous, who's respected, who's very religious. At J, jive talking at Jacob's well, you got a female, and in that culture they didn't write as much as they should have uh, in many ways. She's very immoral, she's irreligious, she has no money, she has no status, no clout. And Jesus tells her, with a different metaphor, the same thing he told Nicodemus. you got to be born again, Nicodemus. You're coming here for water at noon when nobody else would come at noon because it's too hot in the ancient Near East. It's too hot now to get your water at noon. Well, she is so despised by other women in her culture, she has to go to the well the one time she knows she won't bump into any of those catty women who are going to gossip about her. And he says, hey, if you'd ask me, I'll give you living water. She says, hey, I know the Christ is coming, and he'll tell us everything. You know what Jesus says to her? I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. I'm the issuer, an issue of eternal life. That's jive at Jacob's well. 
K. What does K stand for? Look at the visual aid if you need it. Kin kick out. Can you imagine? Jesus has lived a perfect life in and around Nazareth. He's got the official ministry going. The official uh, grand opening of his ministry now in Jerusalem is finished. He goes back to his hometown. He's asked to read the scripture at the synagogue service. It just happens the bookmark Nicole is that Isaiah 61, which says, the Lord, is an, the Lord has anointed me, the servant of the Lord, to preach the gospel to the poor. And he stops the reading at that point. Hands the scroll to the guy, sits in front of the uh, congregation to explain what it means, and he says, that's Isaiah 61, written in 700 B.C. It says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I'm the Savior that has been promised. I am here on the ground. And boy, the, the city just rejoiced, and they were so happy that, you know, hometown boy made good, right? What happens? They're offended, you think you're the Messiah? You're the guy that fixes our cabinets, you know, for all those years. And his kin kick him out. In fact, they attempt to kill him. So we have L, location lateral. Jesus doesn't base his ministry out of Nazareth like you'd expect. Jesus of Nazareth, Church of the Nazarene, right? Uh, he bases it in a fishing village just uh, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. That's why he's bumping into fishermen all the time. Location lateral. Then we have the great Galilean ministry, 18 months of Marvelous messages, Sermon on the Mount, preached hundreds of times in different forms, establishing the fact that we've all sinned, we need a Savior, He is that Savior, through faith in Him you can have not just religion, but a whole new life that allows you now to please God as the fruit of your salvation. So marvelous messages and nature neutralized like the healing of the leper to prove what He's saying about Himself is true. Now, letter O and P. This is the Pike's Peak of the ministry of Christ. Everything's been on the upslope until now. And after 18 months of ministry in and around Galilee and in and out of Jerusalem at least three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, the leaders of Judaism are forced to come up with a public opinion, Betty, on who Jesus is. Everybody's wondering what they think, the experts. And their considered opinion is, he's not the Christ. He's not the Savior. He's the Antichrist. He's not a prophet of God or a spokesman of God. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. That's called the unpardonable sin. Uh, they did that deliberately, concertedly, and categorically. And at that point, everything Jesus says and does can and will be used against him. So everything changes. We'll show you what that looks like in a second. And he begins, among other things, teaching in parables so that his opponents won't totally understand what he's saying. They'll have less to use against him. But people who believe in him, who really want to understand, if they'll think and do the hard work of reflection, they can understand it. Okay? Now, we've got to wipe the map clean, because today we come to Q, one of my favorite letters, Q. I always love Q for some reason. Um, because Q isn't even on this map. It actually is on this map, but we have to move the map. So watch this. Through the miracle of modern technology... Let's move the, the map down a little bit. We're going to go north of Jewish territory, away from the ministry routine, of, 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 away from the uh, desires of the crowd, away from the critics, and we're going to have the very first church retreat in Christian history. Jesus is going to get the guys away from the routine and say, what's the Gallup poll saying about me now that the leaders say I'm satanically possessed? And more importantly, who do you think I am now? You still with me or not? So that's what we're going to see today. Letter Q, quizzical questions. 
And this is done after the O, after the word on the street is the Jewish leaders are saying he's not the Christ, he's the Antichrist. We're going to have three parts of the passage. The setting, a preliminary question and answer, then the ultimate question and answer. Let's look at the setting in space or place and also in time. Very important. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, there's a lot of living in that one statement because Caesarea Philippi, as you see up there, is north of Jewish territory. It was a large city devoted to the worship of the god Pan. Pan was a Greek Roman god of merriment, music, and wine. So it was kind of like Las Vegas on steroids is what Caesarea Philippi was at the time. It's kind of a resort place. And more strategically, it's outside of Jewish territory, and it's at the very base of a 9,200-foot mountain. It's a huge slab of limestone called Mount Hermon. That's where you, you know, we've got Dr. Buchanan here. Now I remember Dr. Buchanan when he was just like a senior at Duncan High School, uh, nervously approaching the podium at Cameron University, giving five-minute informative speeches, you know. So I feel like I should get most of the credit for Aaron's success. <laughs> Right? I would say that, right, with the good ones. But, uh, yeah, uh, where'd the wa- where's all the water come from? I thought Israel's like in a desert. you got this lake, Sea of Galilee, you got the Jordan River. It all comes from the snow melt on top of Mount Hermon, 9,200 foot high, and it works its way down to the bottom and rushes out the bottom of that mountain, and we're very near that place. Once you see it, it's unforgettable. And we're going to see Q today and also R, revelation of Jesus' reality, the transfiguration, takes place at the top of that mountain. And Caesarea Philippi is the city devoted to a pagan god. I wonder how many Jewish religious leaders would ever go to a place like that. They wouldn't go to it at all. That's where you got to shine the light, man. you got to shine the light. You know, if you're going to catch fish, you got to go to where the fish are, right? And so uh, that's what's happening there. But this is so important now. If, if this is kind of a schematic of the overall trajectory of the life of Christ, that's the Pike's Peak. Once the leaders say he's not the Christ, we're not going to worship him, we're going to kill him because he's a false prophet, this, humanly speaking, becomes a foregone conclusion, and Jesus changes the whole tenor of his ministry. Rather than let's get the word out as widely as possible that I'm here, I'm the Christ, I'm the Savior, he's preparing his disciples to carry on after the whole point, perfect life, atoning sacrifice, literal resurrection. Okay, So this setting is very important because, not just because it's outside of Jewish territory, so they've kind of got a time to reflect and really be honest about their thoughts now, but it's right after this indictment by the leaders of Judaism. Okay, So that's the setting. Now look at this preliminary question. Middle of verse 13. He was asking his disciples, who do people, that's the word anthropos, older translations will say men, but anthropos, anthropology means human beings, not adult males. It's a different word. So it's perfectly fine. It's more accurate to say people, men and women, boys and girls. What's the average person on the street saying about me now that they know the leaders are saying I'm a satanically possessed false prophet? That's what that means. That's the context of that statement. And, you know, they might say, well, you're a liar, you're a lunatic, you're crazy, you're bad, evil. Uh, they said, hey, we've got good news, Jesus. Nobody's saying anything bad about you. You know, I, I think the average person is too smart back then to say Jesus must be a satanically possessed false prophet because that's what leaders say. They don't buy that, but they're also saying 
He must not be the Christ. He must not be the one promised in the whole Bible to, to be the Savior for James Mitchell or Brad McCoy or Ron Miller because our leaders wouldn't miss it that bad. So they're saying nice things, really flattering things. Uh, some say you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Uh, others are saying Elijah, the prophet that never died, got up in the chariot and went away. He's come back, and that's Jesus. Others are saying Jeremiah, the famous weeping prophet who called for repentance, national repentance. That would kind of fit some of Jesus' preaching. Or another prophet, your prophet, your good guy. And I think in a way the disciples are thinking, hey, you know, nobody's buying the party line that you're saying you possessed. But what's the one answer that should be in the Gallup poll and that doesn't show up at all, doesn't track at all? Nobody's saying he's the Christ. They may still, some of them may think it, but they're afraid to say it. Right? Because the leaders, that's a capital crime. Being a satanically possessed false prophet's capital crime. You don't want to be an accessory to that. So we move from that preliminary question and answer, which sounds flattering, but ultimately is blasphemous, because if Jesus is the Christ, nothing else but that answer. He's the Savior. He's the issue of eternal life. He's the one who can give it to you through faith. That's the only answer that gets you any credit, right? So we go from the preliminary question and answer, Doug, to the ultimate question. This is the ultimate question everybody's got to answer. I don't care what country you're from, what color you are, what generation you live in. Everybody's got to deal one-on-one with God on answering this question. And this is more important than the final Jeopardy question. I guess it's the final Jeopardy answer. It's more important than the video bonus question on Cash Cab. Anybody seen Cash Cab? I love that show. Aaron, this is this question is more important than your any questions they might ask you at your state board final clinical, uh, was that was that an exciting day or two? Was that a nightmare? Oh man, you spend all your life, you know, getting through dental school, and at the end, you've got to have two days of clinic work. And if you don't do something right, the you know bad things happen. And for me, it's uh, it, on my fiftieth birthday, I did my oral defense of my dissertation uh, for three hours, and I picked a real interesting, scintillating subject. The macrochiastic literary structure, the prologue and the epilogue of the book of Revelation in Koine Greek. That's what I did my, my thing on. They're going to make a movie out of it one of these days. <laughs> that, that was, that was scary because they were asking me all kinds of questions. But this is the ultimate question. Um, who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? And the only answer that works, and it's not a magic word, just saying the word, we'll stress that in a minute. But when you realize what Christ means, you realize it's everything. The correct answer is, and you got to love Peter, man. Sometimes he says, kind of shoots first and asks questions later, right? But, man, he hits a grand slam home run. Uh, Jesus says, but who do you, and that's plural in the Greek, who do you all say? And Judas is, is a, he's a project. He's different. But who do 11 of you now say that I am knowing what the leaders say about me? I'm satanically possessed. Peter, clearly speaking for the group, says, you, nothing's changed, man. We are still all in. We know, we believe with all of our heart. You are the Christ. You are the issue and issuer of eternal life. Where else are we going to go for eternal life, right? Uh, you're the son of the living God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man back in verse 13? You notice that? Like that's his favorite title for himself, Sherry. When you look at the Gospels, as Jesus refers to himself, he refers to himself as the son of man more than any other thing. Son of Man goes back to Daniel 7. It's a title for the Christ that emphasizes his true humanity. However, you got Psalm 2, you've got the Son of God with Yahweh, 
with God the Father, we'd say. And the title Son of God is a title Jesus uses for himself too. And it means he's the Christ, the Savior, with an emphasis on his full deity. His full deity. That's that's a red line. You can't deny that, and you're not with us anymore. We're not saying he's just somebody who came to show us the way. James, you know, James changed the, the lyrics to a worship song with a little suggestion. We don't believe Jesus came to show the way. We came to believe Jesus is the way. Isn't that what he says? So he calls himself Son of Man. Uh, Peter says, you're Son of God. Which one is he? That's the fallacy of excluded middle. They're both true. And most importantly for us this morning, Peter says, you are the Christ. Look at that, Jack. That's not his last name. I, I know you play football. I played baseball and golf. And I've probably heard much worse cussing by a bunch of wimpy golfers than I ever heard with baseball players, you know, because when you miss those short putts, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to, hard to take. And I've been there. I've missed, I've missed putt, I've missed putts that short when they've mattered. I mean, really. And I'm serious. You know, you can't believe it. But, uh, we actually, in our culture, use Christ as a cuss word. We use it to punctuate our sentences. You know, you just ain't important enough to use that very significant term. Now, the problem is a lot of people think Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Even if hopefully they believe in the virgin conception, they'll say, well, Joseph Christ, uh, Mary Christ, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's one of his most significant titles. And let's walk through what you should know about the meaning and the importance of that title. It's not his last name. I mean, this is so important. First John 5 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is the, the, this is the whole gospel in a word, man. Number one, the title Christ means literally the anointed one, the one that God the Father chose to be the Savior. The Jewish term would be the Messiah, right? Uh, the Old Testament predicted that God was going to send someone who, like a lamb, would take care of the sin issue. Uh, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to fulfillment in the one who's the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. Number two, Christ is an exclusive, meaning it only applies to Jesus of Nazareth, for Jesus, who was and is the Christ. It's not an eight, there's no multiple Christ. There's only one Christ. It's Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, for instance, a very, just very, uh, blatantly denied anybody applying that title to himself. They asked him, are you the Christ? He said, you know, heaven forbid, I'm not the Christ. I'm just, uh, somebody here getting ready uh, to announce him. Number three, Jesus himself claims to be the Christ. There's a lot of places, but one that's really neat and really cool. Look at Luke 24, Matthew, Mark, Luke 24. This is the day of the resurrection. Jesus is somewhere between Jerusalem and a city called Emmaus, seven miles away, Walking in his resurrection body and bumping into two of his disciples, not the capital D, Peter, James, and John disciples, but some other guys. They're all freaked out because Jesus got uh, crucified and there are reports he's been risen. And that didn't really fit into their scheme. They thought he was going to overthrow the Romans and take over the government, which was a bad way to think, right? But watch this. Just for some context, you with me? Luke chapter 24, look at verse 19. Uh, so Jesus is walking. The resurrected Jesus is who looks kind of like himself, but not exactly. So they're not always sure who he is at first. Uh, so he says to them, uh, "What things are you talking about, guys?" And they said, "You know the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet and a lot more than that, mighty indeed, 
in word in the sight of God and all the people. And have the chief priest, you know, the ones who said he was satanically possessed false prophet, and our rulers delivered him over to the Romans to crucify him, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was the Savior. We thought he was the Christ. But it's been three days since he was killed, and now some women among us amazed us because they were at the tomb earlier this morning, and they couldn't find his body. His body was gone from the tomb. And they're saying they saw some angels who said he was alive. And we know good and well he got crucified on Friday. Uh, some of those who were with us, talking about Peter and John, actually went to the tomb based on the woman's report, and they found it exactly like the women said, but him, the resurrected Christ, and he's standing there talking to them about this. That's the irony. You couldn't make it up. Him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all the Old Testament prophets said about the Christ, that he would suffer like a lamb and then be resurrected, and then lots of crazy things would happen after that. And then Jesus, this is Jesus, look at this, Jack. This is, look at verse 26. This is so important. Thinking about what the term means and how Jesus understands the term Christ. It's not his last name. Jesus says, was it not necessary, based on Old Testament prophecy and the program of God, for me, the Christ, to suffer these things and then entering into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Old Testament books, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Is that is that amazing? Is that awesome? Say yeah, just to make me feel better. Yeah. Jesus claims to be the Christ, and he walks them through the Old Testament and says, this was the plan from day one, guys. It was the Lamb of God, right? There is no uh, uh, crown without a cross, right? Now watch this. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, not as a magic word, but as a, a component of saving faith, is essentially what the gospel is, you know? Uh, the whole gospel of John has its purpose statement at the end. It says, many other things Jesus also did which are not written in this book. John didn't try to be comprehensive in his gospel, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who was the promised lamb to die for our sins, who's going to come and rule and reign at the end, the son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. First John 5.1 not the Gospel of John, but First John, the letter at the end of the New Testament. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. Now, the opposite of that is born of God. Is also affirmed in First John two two two. I always love that address. First John two two two. Who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? I mean, this is that important, right? And when you look at the way the apostles preached the gospel early especially in the data of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, you read this. It's like convincing people he's the Christ, he's the Lamb, he's the Savior, is the whole point of the gospel. In Acts 5.42, which is in Jerusalem, the twelve apostles have been preaching Jesus as the Savior, the Christ. They got arrested, beaten up, released, told not to do it anymore. But you read every day in and around the temple precincts and from house to house, they, the twelve apostles, kept right on preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ, right? Acts 9.22, right after Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, after he gets his sight back and he's in Damascus, he goes right into the synagogue there in Damascus, and Saul, his name's going to be changed to Paul, he's going to write 13 New Testament books later, 
kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, right? Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, we're in Thessalonica, Paul's second missionary journey. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths in the Jewish synagogue, he reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures, starting probably with Isaiah 53, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. That was the plan. The lamb first, the lion second, the cross first, the crown later. And saying, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Acts 18.5, this is in Corinth. When Silas and Timothy came down from northern Greece, Macedonia, back down to Achaia, or where the city of Corinth was located, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying that Jesus was the Christ. That's the essence of what we believe about Jesus, that he's the one promised in the Old Testament who died to pay for our sin debt and rose again from the dead, literally, bodily, supernaturally, undeniably. And then Acts 18.28, and he, and this isn't Peter, and the guys in Jerusalem in chapter 5, or Paul, Saul, it's Apollos talking about his ministry in Ephesus just before Paul gets there during the second, or third missionary journey. And he, this famous Bible teaching preacher in the New Testament, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Okay? Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a highly significant and unique title identifying him as the issue and the issuer of eternal life to all who trust him for it. It's a mind-blowing thing. Uh, you know, the reality of the resurrection. Somebody once asked F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, uh, a British scholar, what's the difference between Christianity and all the other world religions? And he said, well, the basic difference is uh, the God of Christianity is real. Now, other than that, uh, and more importantly, rather than him telling us to reach up and try to impress him and do stuff to serve him, which is what the religions say, he came down, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that the Son came down, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and paid your way into heaven, paid a debt you couldn't pay, rose again from the dead, and he's the one you want to look to for eternal life. A dead Savior, say Buddha, say Muhammad, say Joseph Smith, can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one is the only one who can. And that being true, this is so much a big part of our Christian worldview. But we bought into this truncated idea that God is our spiritual success coach and he's going to make us happy, happy, happy. 24-7, 168 hours a year. Uh, a year. <laughs> yeah, that's my life. 168 hours a week. That's all you get. We got big things ahead of us, man. Uh, C.S. Lewis said there are far, and in fact the quote from uh, Surprised by Joy is, there are far, far better things ahead than the ones we leave behind. You ain't going to miss anything. God's got all eternity to deal with the scars, and some of us have had some. You know, There are some scars that don't get healed this side of heaven, but they all get healed in heaven. There are far, far better things ahead because the risen Christ says so and guarantees it than the ones we leave behind. So uh, that's the Bible. The Bible's a big book, but it only has two parts. The first part's called the Old Testament. It's all written before Jesus and predicts he's going to come as a lamb and then return later as a lion. New Testament reflects on all of that, right? Those are titles. Hey, Erica, changed it, right? Uh, Jesus, Yeshua, means God's Savior. That's what the word means. 
When we say Jesus is Lord, we mean he's God, the God-man, Savior. Christ, that's the title we're focusing on now, means Savior, Messiah, the one who's going to come and take care of the sin problem personally for us on the cross and eventually end human history on God's terms undeniably, supernaturally, visibly. And remember now, we're living on the New Testament side after the first coming of Christ, but for folks living in the Old Testament, as you can look at the Old Testament, and as Jesus walked the guys through on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, there's all kinds of information about him coming the first time to be rejected, crucified, pay our debt in our place as our substitute, and then come back and make everything right. And when you look at the data, it gets real, real specific. I mean, the Old Testament says it will be a human being, not an angel or an alien, who's going to take care of your sin problem. Uh, it's going to be a male, not a female. It's going to be a Semite. It's going to be a Jew, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tribe of Judah. will be of a particular family and born of a virgin. That really narrows it down, right? So when we say Jesus is the Christ, it's not a magic word, but when you understand what it means, I'm daring to believe that I'm a sinner and it's my fault. I can't fix it. He can because he lived a perfect life for me, died to pay my sin debt on the cross for me, rose again from the dead to prove the saving virtue of his, of his death, and I trust him as my Savior. Um, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to be confirmed with God. Now watch this. We've been showing you the Christ, the Christ, the Christ. Let's look at Peter, who in Acts 5 was going throughout Jerusalem telling people Jesus was the Christ. Look at Acts 10 real quick. And let's see where he doesn't use the title, but he describes the job description of the Christ. To be the Lamb of God, and ultimately the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah at the second advent. But I love this passage. Acts 10, this is Peter preaching to a, a Roman soldier in his household. And look at the way he presents the gospel. It's all about what Jesus did for you. Salvation is not something you do for God. It's something God does for you. Uh, look at Acts 10.39. Peter's preaching the gospel. He knows Jesus is the Christ. In Jerusalem, he's saying Jesus is the Christ. What exactly makes him the Christ? Well, he says, we are witnesses. We saw his life uh, in the land of the Jews, in Jerusalem specifically. But they put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him up. Uh, raised him up on the third day, granted he become visible in that form. Not to everybody, but to certain witnesses like us who were chosen beforehand. And we saw him, we ate and drank with him. We know he rose from the dead, no doubt about it. Uh, just uh, slam dunk. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that Jesus has been anointed not just to be the Savior, but ultimately the judge of all of humanity. And then verse 43 is his bottom line, Acts 10, 43. Of him, Jesus the Christ, Jesus who died for your sins and rose again and offers you eternal life as a gift. Of him, all the prophets in the Old Testament bear witness that through his name, who he is and what he did, everyone, doesn't matter Jew or Gentile, religious, irreligious, white, black, rich, poor, everyone who believes in him receives what? 100%. That's our invitation. Now, it's a good thing we don't have you walk the aisle because we don't have an aisle today. So you can be saved. Uh, you don't technically have to walk an aisle, okay? You have to trust in Jesus Christ. What must I do to be saved? That's Acts 16.30. What's the answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But to the one who does not work, but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. 
if you never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, daring to admit as the Spirit allows you to see it, that you have violated God's standards, that you can't fix it, you can't climb a ladder that you're going to build to get up to heaven, but daring to believe that Jesus died in your place and rose again, and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, I can't fix it, you can and I want you to. That's pretty much all the terrorist on the cross said, the thief on the cross. That's what he tells the woman at the well. Ask me for it, I'll give you eternal life. Now, once you trust Jesus as the Christ in that way, you trust him as your personal savior in that way, he gives you a new capacity to serve him. But all that good stuff that comes out of that is the effect, the fruit. It's not the root of salvation. Okay, let's continue um, looking at the aftermath of this ultimate question and answer. Look at verse 17 and following. Jesus commends Peter and reflects on, does a commentary on this ultimate answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to Peter, who's speaking for the group, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't just dream this up. It just didn't come to you. God's been working in you for you to see and believe this at all. Salvation is of the Lord. He initiates uh, the process. It's not something we do for God. He does it for us. Uh and look at verse 18. Play on word here. The truth that Jesus is the Christ is the foundation of the New Testament church. And I say to you that you are Peter. Now, who gave Simon? That's his name. His name is Simon. Okay, Daryl? His name is Simon, which means listener. But when Jesus first meets him in John 1, what does he say? They call you listener? They call you listener? You're not a good listener. Let's call you Rocky. We're going to call you Petros. You're Rocky. Rough around the edges. I say to you, you're Peter. And, and Peter's going to go, yeah, you gave me that nickname a couple years ago. Yeah, I'm still pretty rocky, right? And yet, upon this rock, different word, Petra in the original means a slab, foundation stone. I will build my church. Peter is not the foundation of the church. Billy Graham is not the foundation of the church. Dallas Theological Seminary is not the foundation of the church. Randall University is close, Right? Uh, Southern Nazarene University is, is a big contributor, but the foundation of the church is the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if we had more time, I'd go into some detail there. Look at uh, MacArthur's study Bible. He breaks it down pretty nicely about the fact that Peter means a little rock. It's kind of like the, what's the capital of uh, Arkansas? Peter. Yeah, it's Peter. Little rock. But this is the feminine form for the foundation. And realize, they're standing at the base of this 9,200-foot, you know, mountain. And he's saying, you know, you think that's a big rock? Well, you just said is the rock that will be the whole basis of the program of God, man. And it's New Testament increment, um, the New Testament church. And then he says, and this is one reason I use the New American Standard Bible. There are a lot of translations out there. The paraphrases will tend to fuzz this up. But you read verse 19, especially in the King James. King James is the greatest English translation of all time. But it's over 400 years old, folks. The English language has changed a little bit. 1611 is when they finished it. Uh, New American Standard teases out the Greek nuance of verse 19, which is important. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom is the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the gospel that Jesus is the Savior. That's the keys of the kingdom. That's the keys of the, the car of the New Testament church. That's what it's about. It's not about James or Brad or Billy Graham or Dallas Seminary. It's about who Jesus is. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound on heaven, in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, remember what Peter said in Acts 10, we just read it. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So heaven's going to react to Peter saying that? Or is Peter announcing what heaven's declared already? There's a really neat, and this is not for the faint of heart, I know, but there's a really neat uh, kind of commentary in the Greek New Testament called An Exegetical Key to the New Testament by Reinecker and Rogers, two German evangelicals, very unusual, especially nowadays. But it says, uh, it's not the church on earth, uh, he said, it is the church on earth carrying out heaven's decision here, not heaven reacting to the church's decision. This isn't saying, whatever you bind on on earth, heaven's going to say, oh, Peter bound it, or, or Billy Graham bound it, or James Mitchell bound that, you know. So, now, Peter is saying, everyone who believes is, is receives forgiveness of sins. He's offering loosing, because that's what heaven's ca- uh, program is. Everyone who trusts Christ receives forgiveness of sins. So if your translation makes it sound like heaven's reacting to Peter here, you got it backwards. It's just a bad translation. Then verse 20, and again, the context of this in the life of Christ really helps you. Then he warned the disciples they should tell no one he was the Christ. You know, I grew up in a culture where we were kind of told we were supposed to witness to five people a week, whether they wanted to hear it or not, and just cram it down their throat. And a couple times a year, they'd make us feel really guilty, because if we don't do that, people are going to go, hell, it's our fault. I think God kind of has more uh, uh, avenues to get the word out than just me, but I try to do the best I can. But... Uh, some people who don't witness very much or at all, this is their favorite verse. Jesus warned us not to tell anybody he's the Christ. <laughs> so it is James and, and Brad's job. You know, I'm just an average Christian. I don't have to do it. Now, he told them right then, they're entering the last six months, and it's the bullets are going to start flying. And he says, let me do all the promotion on this right now. Now, after the resurrection, and listen, it's our time. Stop reading church history. Start making some, Okay. That's what they used to tell us at Dallas Seminary. Stop reading church history all the time, although there's real value in that. Start making some. So the Lord shares, uh, warns them not to share the truth. He's the Christ right now. He can take that uh, as his uh, ministry, as he wants to do it for the next six months until the crucifixion. After that, uh, we're supposed to live it and share it, right? So take this to heart. The ultimate question everyone must answer before God straight up is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the only correct answer is, he is the Christ. What do you mean by that? What is his last name? Uh Uh-uh. He's the one the Old Testament promised. He paid your sin debt. He rose again from the dead, proving that his payment for your sin is uh, supernaturally capable of getting you from earth to heaven. And that's kind of really what we want, right? So that's it. Now, C.S. Lewis, who I quoted earlier, used to say, you know, it's very popular back then in post-World War II uh, Europe uh, and even the United States among the elites to say that Jesus was a well-intentioned social reformer who loved everybody and taught a wonderful ethic of love and compassion but that's really all he is. We, we, we live in the 20th century or today, 21st century. We don't believe he walked on water or did miracles. And C.S. Lewis said, that's the one thing he hasn't allowed you to do. When he claims to be the issue, the way, the truth, and the life, you can't say he's just another nice religious leader. You can say he's lying about it. You can say he's a lunatic. He's crazy and actually thought he was. Or you got to say he's Lord. 
Those are only three logical answers. As flattering as the answers to that preliminary question, what are they saying about me now? Because they know what the leaders think about me. We're still saying nice things about you. Jesus, that's not good enough. He's either lying about it, he's crazy and he actually believed it and it wasn't true, or he is the issue of eternal life. Okay? The only one who can save you. I mean, that's, that's very divisive nowadays. That's very dangerous kind of stuff. But that's the only correct answer. We've given you an invitation to receive that if you haven't. But all other answers, including that he was a very, very well-intentioned, very loving, kind, the greatest, most wisest, the wisest human philosopher of all time, that is so far short of the bottom line reality, it's insulting and blasphemous, right? So uh, I could read that, but I won't. But I'll close here. C.S. Lewis, this is C.S. Lewis Day. He, he, uh, he went to Oxford and uh, was like the outstanding student of all time there, and then he ended up teaching at Oxford and Cambridge. He was an ontological atheist until uh, several years as a professor. See, being a professor can actually help people. Um, and uh, wrote some of the greatest uh, literature on Christianity, I think, for thinkers ever written in the English language. But he said famously, Christianity is false. If Jesus really isn't the Christ, if he really didn't pay for our sins, if he didn't really rise from the dead, is of no importance. And if true, I mean, he really is God incarnate. He really did die for your sins, Henry. He really did rise from the dead. Uh, he really is the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And... You know, the persecuted church we prayed for last week because it was the week of the persecuted church, they pray for the church in America a heck of a lot more than we pray for them. And they pray for us because we act like this is moderately important. If Jesus is your spare tire, you're sitting in the wrong seat. I got my... (laughs) Got my metaphor wrong. If Jesus is your spare tire, forget that one. If Jesus is your co-pilot, that's what I meant. Hey, can we start over? No. Thank you, Lord. Uh, if Jesus is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat, okay? If he's one of the slices of your pie chart, you got him in the wrong place. The only spot that is acceptable, that's anything less than this, is a limp, a spiritual limp in our walk. you got to have him at the hub, okay? Hey, Tyler, can you do maybe a psychological workup on me after this is over, please? Okay. So uh, that's it. We're going to stop there before I do any more damage. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us never to take for granted what the term the Christ means. And for many of us, we've embraced Jesus as our Savior, and we love him as our Lord. And you've done uh, a superlative spiritual miracle in bringing us to that place and regenerating us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, And yet, sometimes we almost take it for granted, or we see it as an accessory instead of the axis of our lives, and forgive us. And we got a, you know, a broader Christian culture that really kind of encourages that. It's, it's fine because you're our success coach. But help us to, to not ever see it that way and to realize just how important this word is. Uh, I pray that if any of us have been using this to punctuate our sentences, you would convict us, uh, strongly against that. And, uh, for me, help us never to be too comfortable in entertainment vehicles that use the blessed name of Jesus to punctuate their sentences to show how cool they are. Um, help us to resist that uh, decline and that degradation. 
Uh, and again, Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning, this is not about me and James today or even about the veterans or about Henley. We're just happy we can celebrate all these things together. But really, this is about Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that uh, TBF and so many good churches in Duncan and all over the world today are standing on that, proclaiming that, and living that. And I pray you'd open up eyes to see that if, if people are here who have never trusted in Jesus alone as Savior. We pray in that His holy, righteous name. Amen.